Hey everyone, it's Cappy. Welcome to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Today's guest is Chef Jacques Pepin. This episode is made possible with the help of our friends at Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. Martin's was founded in the heart of Pennsylvania Dutch country in 1955. They are still the number one branded potato roll in the U.S. And as I like to say, they can make almost any burger taste better. Do you want to share something about Martin's this week, which I found fascinating and true? Their sandwich potato rolls, some of my favorites and my family's favorites. I was recently reading an article by one of my favorite food writers who happened to be writing about a fish sandwich. And when he got to the bun, the roll, he said, and I quote, the bun is a Martin's potato roll, one of those rare supermarket items that most chefs, at least the honest ones, admit they cannot improve upon. Now, if that is not a testimonial, I don't know what is. Here's what I love about Martin's. Their mission encompasses more than just baking great bread and buns and rolls. They believe in giving back to their community and beyond. Through volunteering time and donating resources, they support hundreds of charitable organizations, such as food banks, after-school programs, disaster relief, and others that provide sustenance and comfort to people in need, both close to their baking facilities and abroad. Thank you for all of that, Martins. To learn more about Martins and check out some great recipes, go to potatorolls.com and follow them on all the socials at potatorolls. Martins, we thank you. Today's guest is a living legend. Chef Jacques Pepin has cooked for three French heads of state. He has 16 James Beard Awards. He's written 29 books, and he's been awarded with the Legion of Honor, the highest French decoration and one of the most famous in the world. Please also make sure to check out the Jacques Pepin Foundation and the brand new video recipe book with some incredible chefs and culinary personalities. Ready to do this? Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with Chef Jacques Pepin. We'd like to do a little audio test with you so I could adjust my level. So why don't you name 10 fresh herbs while I do that? Hey, hey, hey. Tarragon, parsley, chive, sturl, uh, savory, uh, oregano, uh, where I am at. <laughs> okay. Excellent. You're good. Thank you. Really, really appreciate your time, um, taking the time to do this. It's, it's an honor and a pleasure on behalf of me, the young kid who used to stand on a chair watching his mom cook. I want to thank you for all you've done for the culinary Thank world. you. Thank you very much. So looking back as a young man yourself, what was the most memorable meal that you ever remember eating? Well, I don't know if it was meal. I mean, during the war, you know, I was a little kid. We didn't really have that much to eat. I mean, I remember some of the dishes my, my mother made. Uh, for example, when she had bread left over and it was rare, the bread, dry bread. We used to take the bread, I remember, bang it on the table uh, to make the, the little animal come out of it. You know, like, but anyway, she would soak that a bit of water. And if she had a couple of eggs, she would do an omelet, put that in the, in the eggs and cook it on each side, which was something which was very stuffing and nourishing and, uh, you know, thing like this. So she used to make uh, uh, sugar with beets because we didn't have any sugar at the time. Cooking those beets to make a, some type of syrup that we use as sugar. And uh, 
But I remember when I was maybe six years old uh, during the summer, my father by then had joined the resistance, so he had left. And actually my mother was passing some message in the uh, handlebar of her bicycle, you know, so I remember that my brother and I, after the war, going with a wire, trying to get in the middle of that handlebar because she said there was still some, some message in there. But in any case, she took me to a farm during the summer uh, season. I had already started school at six uh, because uh, they didn't know where to put me. And uh, so she left me there. She took me with her bicycle and I was kind of sad. I mean, my mother is living too, and but the farmer's wife took me by the hand, took me to the to see the cow in the back. I had never been that close to a cow, I suppose. Put my hand on the teeth of the cow and we could push it down for the milk to come out. And that's probably maybe one of my first remembrance of food, having a glass of uh, that warm milk coming out of the the cow, and that maybe changed my life forever. Interesting. Yeah. That cow, that's so interesting. So I know um, you said to the late Anthony Bourdain, um, we remember things by taste. So what, what taste reminds you of your childhood? Oh, yeah, yeah. The smell, the taste. I mean, we're getting into Proust, you know, Proust in Remembering of Things Past. He talks about the affective memory. That is the memory of the senses, the eyesight, the hearing the tasting, the smelling, the touching. And for a cook, of course, those are very important uh, memory, much more important than the memory of the brain. I mean, when I'm walking in the, in the wood with my dog, I may think about nothing else, and all of a sudden I smell mushroom, and I'm back uh, eight years old picking up mushroom with my father. So those memory of the tastes of the senses are very immediate and very powerful and overwhelming sometimes. You know, you see something déjà vu or smelling or tasting. So all of those tastes of the, the dishes of our children, you know, of our, of our youth are, are very powerful. They stay with you forever. And I can close my eyes. If I have the chicken of my mother, I say, that's my mother chicken, you know, uh, or, or, or even the, the, the lobster souffle at the Plaza Athene in Paris when I worked there in the 50s, or at the Pavillon in New York when I worked there. If I have the striped bass of the Pavillon, the lobster souffle, I can close my eyes, I say, this is, and actually this is the way we learn how to cook, by repeating and testing, repeating and testing. We didn't really have written recipe when I was younger and in the kitchen. Uh, so, but you remember by taste, and by Luke and uh, those dishes, yes. So take us around the Papin family table as a kid. Who's there? What does it smell like? And what are we eating? Well, uh, uh, we, I left home when I was 13 to go into apprenticeship. Well, when I left home, home was a restaurant where my mother was the cook, the chef. So uh, those were always... Uh, uh, food that we had after she finished cooking for lunch, we had the leftover, whatever it was. And we cook at two o'clock. Usually we eat at 1.30, two o'clock in the afternoon because that was the end of the service. What was left over is what we had. And so it could be anything that she was cooking that day or some soup or whatever. But ultimately it was done with, uh, 
you know, fresh vegetable at the time. Uh, uh, I mean, organic food, the word organic did not exist, but uh, there were, uh, you know, uh, fertilizer and, and uh, uh, you know, didn't exist either. So, uh, yeah, we go to the market in the morning and my mother buys stuff and cook for the day in a restaurant. Remember, she they didn't have any refrigeration. You know, we had an ice box that she had a block of ice she got to put fish or chicken that she had, but she cook that first and we always run out of it because she didn't want to have it left over. There is the refrigeration. So uh, it was a mixture of all of this that I remember. Cooked so, very simply. Yeah. So I want to do a very quick speed round just to get to know you a little bit better. Three quick questions. Ready? How old were you when you started to cook? Six years old. Six years old. Who taught you to cook? Well, my mother, of course. My mother, my aunt. There is 12 restaurants in my family in France. 12 of them run by women. I was the first male to go into that business. So. So what was the first thing you ever cooked? I don't remember the first thing that I ever cooked. But certainly uh, uh, working in the kitchen, washing stuff, washing bottle to put the wine in it. Uh, and uh, peeling potato or helping in one or the other. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I wouldn't come back from school. We tried to hide because, I mean, I would, you would never had heard my brother and I saying, I'm bored. My mother would say, you're what? <laughs> bored? Oh, my father, are you kidding? <laughs> That's funny. All right. So I did some of that research and I saw there was a lot of uh, women uh, who ran restaurants and chefs in your family. How did, how did that shape who you are today? Well, maybe, you know, I have been in the kitchen 71 years now, professionally, since I left in 1949 to go into apprenticeship. But prior to that, so maybe as I get older and uh, metabolism changing and all that, I probably go back to more of those tastes of my youth and the simplicity of food. As a professional chef working in great restaurants, Maybe at some point you tend to add to the plate, to add, to add, to add. And now you get older, metabolism change. You kind of remove, remove, remove from the plate to be left with something more essential without too much embellishment. You know, I don't need embellishment on the plate. If I have a tomato out of the garden, which is right at the right temperature, a bit of salt on top of it and a good olive oil, that's it. I don't need more than that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember the moment you realized you wanted to be a chef? Uh, not really, but it was during that time when I worked in the kitchen. Remember, at that time, we didn't have a telephone. There was no television because there was no radio either, uh, not really newspaper. So my father was a cabinet maker by trade. My mother was a cook. I mean, a chef, she ran the restaurant. So my choice, I had blinders on my eye. I would be a cabinet maker or a cook. I never thought that I could be, I don't know, a doctor or a lawyer. That did not exist, period. So I was much more excited by the cooking than cabinet making. So uh, I guess I ended up there. You mentioned something really fascinating earlier about an age. So right now for, for everyone listening to this, I want you to stop for a moment and think what you were doing as a listener, what you were doing when you were 13 years old, okay? I, I know what I was doing when I was 13 years old. Chef, take us back to when you were that age, 13 years old. When I was a year old, I entered a apprenticeship. I mean, we had to go to school in France until uh, primary school and finish the exam, which was 14 years old. When I was a year ahead in school, I was almost two years ahead, so I'm saying that uh, because I could have continued in school if I wanted to, but I didn't want to. So when I, I passed the exam at 13, 
And my mother took me to Bourg-en-Bresse, the town where I was born. Uh, she knew uh, that big hotel. He knew the chef for me to get into formal apprenticeship. I mean, I get into that gleaming kitchen uh, with enormous stove too, and I was very excited. But we work 8.30 in the morning until 10, 10, 10, 10, 15 at night. At 13. We, yeah, with a cut in the afternoon, we cut between two and five. And uh, one of us stay on guard anyway during the afternoon. And no day off and no pay. Uh, the month, The whole month I would work the whole month, a month straight. And at the end of the month, I would get four days off. So I could take the bus and go to, uh, to back to, to my mother, uh, bringing uh, my hat, my clothes, my towel. Had, we had three towels, uh, my apron, the sheet of my bed, everything for her to wash and bring back the week after. But we were very happy. I mean, that's what the way life was, you know, <laughs> it was no big deal. Were you nervous when you first stepped into that kitchen, that professional kitchen? Ooh, nervous and excited. Everything was due. And, uh, but the first thing that you do uh, was really cleaning the floor, cleaning the stove. Uh, around the big stove, there was a bar where you hang up your towel, where that bar in steel, that was not stainless steel, it was steel. The chef wanted us to take uh, sandpaper and mark it this way, this way, this way across. Uh, totally useless, but it was a question of... Uh, so we did uh, that type of cleaning the floor, cleaning that, and then I started cleaning up parsley, and uh, doing vegetable and peeling, and of course, eviscerating, scaling fish, eviscerating fish, uh, rabbit, chicken. At the beginning, we killed them, not long. Someone else was in charge of killing, but uh, we tried to pluck them as fast as we could after they were killed because they pluck very good when they're still kind of lukewarm <laughs> without the rigor mortis, and you don't tear the skin. Because if you tear the skin, that was a no-no with the chef, a big deal, so <laughs> yes. The same thing with the, the rabbit, you know, we take the skin out of it. All of that was part of the everyday cooking, part of what we did. It wasn't a big deal. So then you went on to be the personal chef to three French heads of state, yes. which is fascinating. And then at 20, I think around 24 years old, nearly 60 years ago, you came to New York. Right. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. what that felt like to arrive in New York City? Oh, yes. I mean, I did come to New York to stay. Uh, most people come to America uh, because of uh, economic reason to get a better life or, or racial reason or a political reason or a religious reason or one of those things. I didn't have any of this. I had a very good job in Paris. My parents had a restaurant. Uh, I was doing well. Uh, I had no problem with <laughs> religion or anything. No, I said I'll go to New York because... America was and still is to a certain extent, you know, the, the El Dorado. I mean, uh, so uh, the Golden Fleece. So I say, I'll go to New York for a year, two years, learn the language and come back. I came to New York from the first day. I loved it. And I thought people were so, so nice, uh, quite different than now. I mean, people would say, wow, you come from Europe. I mean, you have so much culture, so much background to... So I said, wow, people are so nice here that now it's more the opposite. We are the greatest, we are the strongest, whether they diffuse, don't say that you're anti-American. Oh my God, you know, so yeah, very much. It was quite different at the time. And I could do here, I remember I came to the pavilion uh, the day after I was here, I was second. And the chef said, call me uh, 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 Pierre. I said, wow, I mean, in France, uh, are you kidding? And every 
everything in that sense. I went back to school. I did all kinds of things there that I would never have done in France. So uh, it was uh, a revelation for me, and I loved it from the first day, and still, still do. Yeah. Did you know? Did you know you were going to work at Le, uh, Le Pavillon? I never heard of the Pavillon. No one that you know the Pavillon was probably nothing considered in France at that time. I don't think that Michelin had even gone through the Pavillon yet. So uh, it wasn't. It was known. Having been the restaurant from the 1949 uh, World's Fair and the people who were there, Soule and Pierre, uh, the, the war started in 1939, so they couldn't come back. That's when they opened the pavilion. But it was not a known restaurant in France at all. No. So how long between when you arrived in New York and you started working there? The day after. Oh, the next day. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because I, uh, the guy, you, it was a small restaurant in, the, in, the, in New York called La Toque Blanche, the White Hat, you know, and the, the owner I had met in Paris. And he said, oh, if you want to come to America, I'll sponsor you. It was very easy to go at the time. I mean, I, I, in, the, in a month, I had my visa and stuff because at that time, uh, at that time, there were special amounts of immigration for each country. And the quota was never really fooled in France, so it was easy to go in. It was only in the 70 or 80 that they put European group together. Prior to that, because for Italian, it would have taken a year to go because almost a third of Italy immigrated in the 20s and the 30s, but not in France. So if you were Italian, you would have to wait forever. If you were French, you would, you would go right away because the quota was not full. So he had asked me, uh, so I said yes. So he sponsored me, I came. So I went, I remember I came on a student boat. So I arrived in, uh, in, uh, we saw some Aurora Borealis and stuff like this. I arrived in Quebec. So in Quebec, I took the train to get to Grand Central. Then I took my, my suitcase there and went to walk to go to that man who lived on 50th and 1st Avenue. And I stayed there overnight. And the day after he said, I'm going to take you to a restaurant if you're interested. So he took me to the pavilion and Pierre Frenet, the chef, told me, yeah, you can start tomorrow if you want. So that was it. What were you traveling with? Did you have uh, knives or a jacket or? Well, actually, yes. I had a, a, a kind of big suitcase that my father had made. He was a cabinet maker, you know, uh, in the wood. <laughs> and also a small one with my knife in it and so forth. I mean, at that time, you could do that. Yeah. What's your knife of choice? I feel like I often see you using a paring knife. Yes. I have three knives, basically. I know I probably have 300 knives, but I mean, three knives, you need a, a, a shopping knife, you know, uh, about uh, eight to 12 inch, depending on your hand. And then a, a utility knife, about six, seven inch, and a pairing knife. Three knives will do everything, you know. Yeah. Okay, so you said you live near 50th and 1st, which funny enough, when I first moved, I live in Chicago now, but when I first moved to New York, um, I lived on 54th near 1st. At that time... Did you ever eat out nearby? Was there anywhere you, you ate for food after, after work or anytime? No, what I love to, at the beginning, when I first here, I stayed at the, at the YMCA, I believe, for like a, a week too. And then I find a room in a small restaurant between the 5th and 6th Avenue on 51st Street and I had a room upstairs. So uh, I didn't speak English. 
at the time. So uh, my day off, Saturday, Sunday, I was close to, uh, to Broadway. So I would walk on Broadway and eat in the street all the time. I'd never had food in the street from hot dog to, uh, to uh, all, uh, you know, all kind of stuff. And go to the movie there sometime, two or three movies on 42nd Street, uh, uh, you know, for the same price you stay there and so forth. So that was uh, probably my... My schedule in the first five, six months that I was here. Yes, right. Yeah. Your wife, um, Gloria, you call her the best in the world. Right. When you're home, who's cooking in the kitchen? Well, usually I am cooking, but she cooked too. Uh, and uh, when she cooked, it's not like I come into the kitchen and she said, darling, what do you think? She usually said, don't touch anything. <laughs> so. Is there something she makes that you particularly love? Oh, Yes. From uh, arroz con pollo, you know, rice and, and because she's uh, Puerto Rican Cuban, I mean, but born in New York, but, uh, and uh, she does probably the best uh, spaghetti and, uh, and, uh, uh, clam and spaghetti sauce, you know, uh, that, uh, your thing like that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I, I hear that you declined an offer from the Kennedys to serve as the chef of the White House long time ago, only, right. only to take up an offer from Howard Johnson, right. who was a regular at the restaurant that yes. you were working at. Yes. Can you explain how you came to that decision? Well, you have to realize it was another world altogether. You know, I was chef, as you mentioned, to three presidents in France. I finished with De Gaulle, and that was between 56 and the end of, uh, almost the end of 59, I mean, the end of 58. And so at that time, I was never once on a, well, television barely existed, but like on a radio or a newspaper or anywhere that did not exist. I was never once called to the dining room for kudo to that did not exist. You know, I saw Madame de Gaulle on Monday to do the menu for the week. Uh, after church on Sunday, they were very devout Catholic. Then I did the, the big family dinner. So uh, eight or 10 children, grandchildren, so that they ate exactly what they wanted. The rest of the time I dealt with her or the protocol because we had, I served Eisenhower and Eru, Tito, Macmillan, head of state at the time. So that you have to set up the menu in different way. But the point is that if anyone came to the kitchen, it was to complain about something. There was never anything. There was absolutely no, the cook, the chef, whatever was at the bottom of the social scale. Any woman would have wanted their child to marry the lawyer, a doctor, certainly not a cook. So when I came and worked at the pavilion, when I was offered the job at the White House, to tell you the truth, I had no inkling of the possibility of publicity or how often it could be. I didn't see that at all. I say, I have done that thing already and uh, I don't really want to do it again. And on the other hand, Howard Johnson was uh, another world. I would learn about uh, American habits, American taste. I would learn about mass production. I would learn about chemistry of food. I would learn about all kinds of things that I didn't know anything about in terms of mass production. In fact, when I quit Howard Johnson, I was there 10 years, 1960, 1970. I opened a restaurant on 5th Avenue in New York called La Potagerie, where I did mass production of soup. Then I opened the World Trade Center with Joe Baum in the two tower, the commissary where we could feed over 10,000 people a day. Then I was a consultant at the Russian Tea Room in New York during the 80s, you know, again, big production. I'm only saying that to say I would never have been able to do any of those jobs if I hadn't had the training of Howard Johnson. As a French chef, I didn't know about production, marketing. I worked with chemists, you know, so new world like bacteria or coliform <laughs> that I didn't know. 
you know, I learned. What you're saying is so fascinating because people don't realize, as I started to dig more into his story, this guy, I mean, so, this isn't about me, listener, but I mean, this guy, Howard Johnson was an entrepreneur, a businessman. His contribution to the restaurant industry in general I mean, he created the first modern franchise of restaurant. I mean, commissary systems, everything you're mentioning about your mass production of soups and windows on the, like the, the world trade, all these things. It's incredible. I was going to ask you, do you, what, what you learned from him or did you take anything? And clearly it impacted you throughout a lot more of your career. Yeah, he was a very unpretentious man. Actually, he never even went to high school, but he always had a, a chauffeur, <laughs> a car. And he came to the commissary, he came to the wedding, to, to my wedding, he came to the christening of my daughter with his wife and all that. He was an extraordinary man. When we started at the Pavi, at the, at Howard Johnson with, uh, with Pierre Frede, uh, he said, you do whatever you want. Start the way. So we were open at it. First, he said, if Jacques wants to work, uh, for us, he, wa- he worked at one of our restaurants first. So I ended up on Queens Boulevard at the bigger Howard Johnson there. And it was my first experience in an American kitchen. My first experience with Black Chef too. All the kids there were black kids. You know, the first time that I met American chef, they were all black kids. And of course, they never heard of uh, the pavilion. They probably never heard of the gold. So uh, uh, like you do in any kitchen, you have to prove yourself. So, you know, I jumped behind the stove and within two, three weeks, I could flip burger or do stuff as well or better than anyone else. So that was my first training. Then I went on to the commissary. Uh, But then at the commissary, he would come, taste the food, and uh, he was really an extraordinary man this way. In 2000, I was asked by uh, Time magazine, did an article, the 100 most important people of the 20th century. Started with uh, Ford and finished with Bill Gates, I believe. One of them was Ray Kroc from, uh, 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 you know, Ray Kroc. And uh, so I had met Ray Kroc with uh, Mr. Johnson several times. So they asked me to write the article. And when I was writing that, you know, I realized that Howard Johnson in the mid-60s was bigger than Burger King, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and, and, uh, 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 and McDonald's. All together, Howard Johnson was bigger than that. We had over a thousand restaurants, uh, you know, 200 motel, four commissary. So it was big. He was at one time, I saw the largest commercial food supplier in the United States. Yes, bigger after, after, after the army. Did you ever cross paths with the Kennedys again after turning down the offer? Uh, not really. I mean, never really. Uh, I, I went to the White House. I went about it several times by one thing or another. Uh, one uh, during Bush and during but, uh, Obama. But uh, no, never directly, no. So have you ever bonded with, you know, Rachel Ray's mom, her mother worked for Howard Johnson's. Have you guys talked about that? You know, I think she, she, she mentioned that. Yeah. <laughs> you see, what happened when I work at the Pavilion, uh, the pavilion, there was the main table, which, which they call, la, la, I don't know, they have a special name for that, main table for very important people. So the Kennedy, Duke and Duchess of Windsor, the Kennedy, Howard Johnson, people like that came and did at that big table there. And in the spring of 1960, when Kennedy was running, uh, the whole clan came to it and it was really uh, uh, Joseph Kennedy, the father, and everyone was there eating and discussing whatever. And then uh, uh, um, uh, some type of... Uh, uh, 
you know, an interviewer came in, uh, you know, a journalist came in and two. And uh, so uh, uh, Mr. Johnson, I mean, the, uh, uh, me, uh, Mr. Kennedy, he told the Metro to get that guy out of here, you know. And uh, Sule, who may have been a, a Republican, <laughs> maybe heard that. And he said, at the pavilion, it's only Sule who decide to stay or go to the pavilion. Yeah. So they got mad, they stand up, left, and never came back again. And this is the time when we were all leaving the pavilion and the Metro did open La Caravelle. So they all end up going to La Caravelle. And it is at Robert Mezin, the owner of La Caravelle, that again, uh, Mr. Kennedy asked, we need a chef for the White House. So they eventually, they called me and so forth. That's how it happened. Wait, it was La Caravelle the uh, Jamais? Yeah, yeah, jamais, yeah, yeah. Rita, 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 and, yeah. Uh, after that, when they bought it from uh, from uh, Roger Fessaguet and yeah. all of the people who started it, you know. Yeah. Okay. So in 1974, I, you were in a a horrible, near nearly fatal car accident. Yes. How did that change your outlook on life or your career? Well. Fortunately, at the time, you know, I was in the graduate school at Columbia at that time. I had been going back. Actually, I started at Columbia three weeks after I came to America at the end of 1959. And I went in 1973. So, uh, uh, because I was working, so I took class at night. So I had to do, I had never went to high school, so I had to, to do uh, first English for foreign students and they, some type of validation program. Eventually, uh, I get a BA and uh, an MA and so forth. Actually, I was doing a PhD there, which they refused my doctoral dissertation, which was on an history of food in the context civilization literature. They say, food? Are you crazy? <laughs> or whatever. So, you know, it has changed a great deal. So anyway... Uh, uh, yes. Uh, um, uh, so what was your question again? <laughs> the car, the car accident. How did it change? Oh, the car outlook? accident. Yeah. So, uh, uh, because of this, and I started writing uh, for, for, uh, uh, House Beautiful with Helen McCullough. So a little bit of this. So when I had my accident, you know, I had 14 fracture. I broke my back, my two hips, my pelvis in four place, leg arm, first First paper my signed, my wife signed at the hospital was removal of the left arm as it has totally exploded. Anyway, they didn't do it. Uh, in any case, I could not stand working behind the stove as you do. I have a drop foot. I still have it because I cut my sciatic nerve when I broke my back. So, uh, I couldn't work behind the stove the same way that I used to. So I start moving in that direction more. And uh, actually in the eighties, I, I wrote for the New York Times for 10 years that I had a colon. And it was coincidental at that point and the 70 with women liberation, organic gardening, uh, health foods for, and uh, little little cookware shop, which happened with the cooking school in the back that was due. So I started, I think, in in Brooklyn. Uh, I gave a class, a couple of classes there. So people get in touch with me. I end up... In the 70s, doing close to uh, the end of the 70s and 80s, doing close to uh, 40 weeks out of the year, going from East Coast to West Coast, doing a week in each of those cooking schools. That's how I was making a living at that time. And uh, and that's also, I wrote that technique, which was an illustration, illustrated manual of cooking technique, because I learned from teaching there, like, you know, uh, I was not going to put in that technique how to peel a carrot. 
you know, it's a given. People know to peel a carrot. Then I peel a carrot. People say, wow, that's how you peel a carrot. I say, okay, I'll put it in there <laughs> or whatever. So I did that uh, illustrated manual of cooking technique because of that, all those years of uh, teaching, you know. Wow. Okay, so looking back at your incredible career, how do you define success? Well, it's very easy, you know. If you make a living of something you love to do, <laughs> That's success. You know, you don't even have to make much money. If you're happy in what you're doing, this is the success of life. There's no question about it. Yeah, I agree there. All right. You've talked about extraordinary chefs. Um, I've heard you talk about Thomas Keller, Eric Repair, and others, all we've thankfully had on this podcast. Daniel Boulou, yeah. Daniel Boulou, yeah. We we reached out to one of our guests, past guests, Chef Eric Repair, to ask him about Chef Jacques Pepin. Oh. And he had this to say about you. He said, when I think of Jacques Pepin, I think of a grand monsieur, an exceptional chef. What Jacques Pepin means to me is great inspiration. Oh, good. That's very kind of him. <laughs> yeah, he inspired people. I've never had a three-star restaurant myself. So, you know, I, I could learn a lot from him, believe me. <laughs> Actually, you can learn from anyone. You know, anyone you cook with, if you keep your mind open, you will learn. Sometimes you learn what not to do, but right. you learn something. Very true. Well, that, my question, who, who inspires you or what inspires you? Everything. You know, I go to the market, I look at the food, I touch the food, uh, I read something, I'm there with friends, uh, I talk about food. Any of that is inspiration. And I'm always hungry. I'm kind of a glutton. So (laughs) (laughs) These days, it seems like a lot of people have a lot to say about food, whether it's where a recipe originated or if an ingredient does or does not belong in a dish. Is it truly authentic, all this? You've said... If something tastes good, it doesn't matter whether it's authentic or prepared correctly. What works, works. Yeah, it's interesting because in in that context, I am really considered often as maybe the quintessential French chef. Well, you open my book, page 32, and you see a black bean soup with banana on top and cilantro. Because then you have a Kentucky fried chicken type of thing or, or a lobster roll from Connecticut. So after over half a century, I'm probably the quintessential American chef now. And I don't think that I was ever very chauvinistic about, uh, you know, I don't really think that in terms of it's that French or it's not. And I, there is nothing wrong with that, but it's not my, my type of thing. So is, is there a perfect meal in your mind? Oh, yeah, the perfect meal is the meal that you eat with the people you love the most uh, and the food that you enjoy. You know, you try to cook for people what they like to eat, not what they like to eat. And if you if you do that, and if you have enough wine, and sometimes you remember meal much more because of the context and all of that than because of the specific dish. I've eaten in so many three-star and extraordinary restaurants, and very often after a, a testing menu with 20 dish, the day after I don't even remember what I ate, but I remember the taste of my mother's chicken. There you go. I have a question, or I want to bring something up about uh, restaurant reviews and food critics. Um, I was so happy to see this because you you said, quote, I always say in jest that food critics should be blind so that they can go to the heart of the matter and know whether the food is good or not. I agree with you, chef. Not that you asked me, but I agree with you. Uh, <laughs> you you've also said it's difficult for a chef to admit that a food critic with limited cooking knowledge may have a larger, more complex sense of taste than he does and and can analyze the chef's dish 
and be aware of his limitations when he doesn't realize it himself. Yeah, you, you, you are limited by, by the extent of your taste and it's different with different people. Yeah. Do you, uh, chefs are friends with chefs. Do you, are you friends with any food critics? Well, yeah, I mean, I was, my greatest friend, my mentor here was Craig Lebon when I came here, you know, I mean, it was, the food world was very, very small when I came here. You know, six, not even six months after I was here, I was friends with Julia Child, James Beard, and Craig Lebon. Those were the trinity, the trinity of cooking in the, in the U.S., but the food world was very small. Did you ever read uh, reviews? Oh, yes, of course. You know, and I, I, I did many reviews with Craig going with him and even with the Brian Miller after when he, uh, and, uh, I could never have done better than Craig did. He was very good this way, I think. So, but I would never, in fact, you know, I was approached uh, for the job at the New York Times after Craig left. And, uh, I say I could never do that. I could never go to Lutes. And I would say it's extraordinary. It's great food. However, there is a bit too much noise or too much this. And Solskjaer would never talk to me again. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I, I, and I couldn't do that. So, uh, no, criticism is not uh, my forty, you know. So, oh, that's a that's a good that's a good thing. You said when you passed eighty years old, you were supposed to be wise, but you don't think you're any wiser than when you were thirty years old. Why is that? I don't know. You know, I think in fact that I discover more stuff that now. You know, I suppose as you, the more you know, as you get older. Uh, the, the, the less you realize you know, and the more you doubt, you know, I mean, you know, it's when you don't really know that much. I see when I see a young chef who is 20 years old and someone write an article on him and he's the greatest chef and he believe all of this. Uh, yes, because he doesn't know enough to believe something else, but 30 years later is probably quite different. You know, you realize that, uh, uh, you know, and, and what's good for you is not necessarily good for someone else. I mean, you can probably do a, re a book recipe with 10,000 recipes just for chicken. If you go from South America to Australia, to West Africa, uh, to Korea, uh, Italy, France, or whatever. And those dishes that people have, wherever you come from, whatever your background is, it is what's great. This is what's food. This is what my mother used to do. And you may come from another country and say, that's disgusting. You know, so. That could be an interesting, you know, it'd be an interesting article. I feel like, you know, like a food and wine, best new chef, like a class from the eighties or nineties to now, like interviewing them on what they thought they knew back then, you know, compared to what they know now. When did you realize that you had made it as a chef? Made it. I don't really think that I made it in any way. I mean, I made it, I made it, uh, as you say, uh, at some point, I never really had a, even a three-star restaurant. And we, we, I mean, I opened a restaurant in Connecticut with my wife too. But uh, uh, then I started writing about food. And probably what I appreciate the most is the diversity of what I did. I did consulting work for restaurants or uh, like the World Trade Center and uh, writing about food and uh, cooking and, uh, but basically if I had to write every week too, uh, on a newspaper, I probably get very bored with it too. And if I had to do consulting work only, the beauty of what I do is that it's always food, but different aspects of food. And it's great. Do you get bored easily? Uh, 
Yes, I guess so. I don't know. You have to ask my wife. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do for fun to take off, to take your mind well, off of it? We off pick of up mushroom in the wood and uh, we play bull, you know, pétanque, which is a French bull game similar to, to bachi, you know. So we play a lot of that. And uh, I walk at the dog. I walk at the beach with my dog and do the garden, you know, thing that people do. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about this beautiful book. You've done a lot of books, Chef Chef books and La Technique. Like you mentioned earlier, you've done books for people on on budgets, books for health conscious people. You did one with the Cleveland Clinic. You did a book, Cooking with Your Granddaughter, fast food theme books. You have this book called Quick and Simple. I think it should be called Quick, Simple and Smart because the first eight pages alone are worth the price of this book, in my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) What makes this book different from the previous 29? Nothing really different. You know, the food, I did 13 series of television of 26 shows. So each time we did a book, like I did Food My Book, I did, uh, uh, you know, Today's Gourmet. And so each time, uh, and then I wrote for the New York Times for 10 years, how to cook for a minimal amount of money for a family of six. So I did a book, Cuisine Economic. So each of those, because I took food to a, to a very specific area or when I did for the Cleveland Clinic for cardiac patient weight loss. So that very specific area where I put my mind to cook in that context. So uh, that's what I have so many different types of title. And here the idea was to do to help people in the kitchen to make it so that you could use, you could use the supermarket as a prep cook. You know, uh, when I'm in the kitchen, you have a prep cook who come and he bone out the chicken, he bone out the fish, he chop the, the shallot, he slides the, 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 the mushroom. So I come to the stove, I have an order for a piece of fish, I grab those fillet of fish, a bit of shallot, a bit of a uh, bit of white wine on top, boil it one minute, take it out, finish it with a bit of butter, cream to up, my dish is done five, six minutes because I have all that prep. You know, so you can go to the supermarket now. I get a skinless, boneless breast of chicken, pre-washed spinach, pre-sliced mushroom. Uh, I use an stick pan and within five minutes you can do a dish. When I did those show fast food my way, I used to have the package from the supermarket right there. And I did three dishes, sometimes four in the 30 minutes of the show because of that type of thing. So there it was the same idea too. And I started that book. That book was actually a book that I did in 19, in the mid 1990 called uh, The Shortcut Cook. And, uh, well, I've written 60 recipes on that. I've written all those recipes and so forth. But basically, I started, they asked me to redo it uh, a, a year and a half, two years ago. So I started doing that way before the pandemic. It just happened to coincide and work out with the pandemic, but I didn't do it for that. I mean, what I do for that are those uh, videos that I do for my daughter on Facebook, you know, so that she asked me to do that for this. What excites you about writing a book? Well, there is a beginning, a middle, a hand, you know, to this. It's a complete project. Uh, it's exciting. I think work together. Now I put a lot of my painting, a lot of my drawing in it. So it brings a lot of uh, stuff for me. I don't usually, well, I have an editor like anyone else, but I don't have someone writing for me. I do my writing and my stuff too. So uh, there is something about uh, the beginning and the end of a book, something finished that you have accomplished. It's a bit like when I do a painting from the beginning to hand, then it's there. You can look at it after. So I feel good about that. Is it challenging for you? Yeah, it's always challenging. 
you know, it's always challenging. And uh, uh, when I write something, an article and two, I don't think that I ever start at the beginning. You know, I, I start in the middle, right there where I know. And then eventually I find the end and the beginning uh, through that. And a little bit the same thing with the book. I don't want to be chronological. I, I start cooking what I feel is right at that time too. And eventually start adding, adding and moving so that to, to, to divide it into segment after and so forth. Yes. So this book is intended to make your life easier. It says, there's two things I want to touch on that I need further explanation. One, you mentioned a microwave and cooking small portions of fish. Please explain. <laughs> yeah. Well, the microwave, the first time I saw a microwave was at Howard Johnson, when I was director of research and development. It was a new piece of equipment called the radar range. And it was very big with a very small window. And the guy said, you have to watch, don't stay in front of it because if there is leak and he had a little neon light and he put it in front of the, the machine, he put it on and if there is any of uh, the, the, the thing which went through, it light up the neon light, it agitated the particle of mercury in the neon light. Wow, I get, I say, I'm not staying in front of that machine ever again. It's much, much safer now, those work. So anyway, uh, I, I use the, 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 the microwave, yes, a great deal, usually to reheat something or to cook something, even to open oyster. I showed them the other day, my daughter could not, but I said, okay, about 20, 30 seconds in the microwave, it's gonna pop the top, then you can open it too, and it's at, by then it's warm, but it's not cooked. So you can cool it up or finish cooking it in there or do something. So yes, you can do a lot with the, with the microwave. And, and fish is great, except you do it maybe two portions at the time. If you do four or five portions, then there is area which are cooked and area which are not cooked. So it's really for instant cooking of very small portion. That's where it works out the best, or to reheat something, or to melt chocolate, or, or to do bacon. The best bacon, you know, you put bacon on the, on, a, on a plate, uh, on paper towel, another piece of paper towel on top. It's a very crisp too, it absorbs all the fat, and it's very good. My wife showed me how to do that yeah. one. <laughs> and then the second thing I think has been around for, for a while and there's been many iterations of it, but um, you've almost talked me into it, a pressure cooker. Yes, well, the pressure cooker. I remember one time with my mother, it exploded, that thing, because my mother used pressure cooker about 50 years ago in France, but it wasn't safe as now. It could be very dangerous. What did she use it for? Yeah, oh, she used it to cook beans, to cook anything that has to cook a long time, some type of stew, very tough meat, and so forth. Yes, absolutely. So, yes, pressure cooker is a very good... Even I had one, the problem with those things is that it's big and it takes space and I don't have space. But I had one that I used, but now it's in the closet. I haven't used it in a long time, but it was an electric one, which was great. I was showing, I, I show it in certain sh in show that I did. For people going to work, I say, you leave at nine o'clock in the morning, you put half a pound of peas in that, uh, of, of, uh, of uh, white beans rather, and uh, you'll meet some pork shop, whatever, in there seasoning too, and you put it on the timer. You come back from work at five o'clock, so you have the machine to start at two. So it's finished at three, then it decompresses and it's still warm when you get home. So it, you know, it was terrific if you know how to use it. I may have to, play around. I may have to play around there. I, I love the whole process of a braise, like the browning and the slow simmer and the long cook. I love that. but. I guess there's a time and a place for the pressure cooker. I'll, I'll give it a yeah, shot. Yeah, sure, and that's why you know when you do when you do sous vide cooking, 
and all that, which I have never done. I've done, I've done myself, but never done on television too, because it's not very enticing. All you see is plastic bag, water, <laughs> you know, cooking under water. There is no smell. There is nothing to, so it's not, uh, like we talked about the senses before, the eye and the smell and the touch, you don't have that there. Yeah, that's true. Even yeah. though the result is great. All right, let's swing it over to uh, social impact and giving back, which you've done plenty of in your day. As a listener may know from past seasons, all of our guests on Beyond the Plate give back in many different ways. And we touched up upon that at the top of the episode. But given today's state of the world, there's even more ways that chefs are stepping up and giving back while being hit by this pandemic, uh, which is very crazy to me because chefs are restaurants are getting crushed right now. So the fact that these chefs are stepping up to give back, is this surprising to you? No, no, it's not. It's, uh, and it's, it's heart rendering, you know, when you see what's going on in the restaurant business, you know, and it's, we're going to feel it for a long time. I mean, it will, won't kill the restaurant, but I foresee the restaurant smaller, more focused onto a few dish with uh, people, maybe friend working with you, a smaller group with where your clients are going to be more friend than anything else. You know, more in the style actually of my mother type of small restaurant when I was a kid. But uh, yes, the, 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 there is something very soothing, you know, cooking in the kitchen with the family, something very secure. I mean, as we said before, for a child, those taste memories stay with you. When you come back from school, you are in the kitchen and you smell the kitchen, you hear the voice of your mother, your father, the cling of the, the equipment, the smell, and those are visceral feeling that you stay with you the rest of your life. So, you know, in those type of strain like this, that's what I did those video with, uh, with my daughter Claudine for Facebook. So people, I say, cook with your kid. It's not even a question of cooking together. It's a question of then sitting down and sharing the food. Then that bring on conversation. It's a whole type of cultural thing, which for me has always been very, very important. When Claudine was a year old, I hold her in my arm and I made her stir the pot. So she stirred it. So she, quote, made it because she stirred it. So she was going to taste it. And likewise with my granddaughter. She was three years old. She stand next to me on a stool. She's taller than me now, but she's still on a stool. And I said, okay, give me a spoon. Give me the bowl there. Did you smell it? Okay, give me the, help me to wash those letters. Okay, give me some parsley. I said, no, that's not parsley. That's sharp. Test it. That's parsley. That's sharp. Okay, take her to the market. Get me some pear. Are they ripe? Did you smell them? You think they are ripe? And those tomatoes, you think they are ripe? Come back. She sit next to me. Give, so, you know, she get involved with the food, get involved and in discussion and in talking. And that bring all the topic, you know, and you talk with them. So that's important. Yeah. So you've done an incredible amount of charity work, including an organization that I happen to love, Spoons Across America. But in 2016, correct me here, you, your daughter, Claudine, and your son-in-law, um, Raleigh, started the Jacques Pepin Foundation. Tell, tell me about that. Tell us about that. Well, it's actually, they started it, not me. They did all the work, you know, especially Rolly. Rolly is a professional chef for the last uh, 30 years, you know. But then he started teaching at Johnson & Well uh, now, and uh, he went to college 
and he's a very brilliant guy. And when I told him, if you start teaching, maybe you should go back to school, you won't pay for it. Then he got a master and finally he got a PhD a couple of years ago in education. So he's very, very bright and a good writer. So he started the foundation. And uh, we wanted to start the foundation for people who have been a bit disenfranchised by life. So we work with Community Kitchen. So it's a great deal of people who come out of jail, homeless people, uh, former drug addict, uh, veteran, uh, you know, people like that. So it's not young people, you know, from 25 to 50 years old or more. And uh, I did so many television shows and so many books and so many uh, 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 video on technique, how to peel this, how to peel that and so forth. He took that material to give it to Community Kitchen because it doesn't seem that there is anything, uh, no standardization there. You know, you go from one to the other, it's quite different. So he wanted to do more of a standardized showing uh, technique that I show and my book to, to work with different Community Kitchen and kind of give those people who come there, you know, a little bit of a, a little bit of a goodness so that they can be proud and redo, not to work at Daniel or, 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 or Jean-Georges or stuff like that, but to, 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 to open a little, uh, you know, eating place to eat and kind of redo your life and learn some basic technique and make, uh, make you proud of yourself. So it's very rewarding in many ways. And, uh, you know, you have an organization like, uh, uh, Fair Start in, uh, in Seattle. You know, it's incredible. I mean, those people take go in the street and pick up all homeless people. They grab them, give them something to wear, put them in a room, so they have there, put them in a kitchen. And it doesn't work 100% of the time, but like 75% of the time, you will have people who stay there while they are two years later. I mean, you have people like uh, Andrew Zimmer. You know Andrew Zimmer. Well, he used to be a, a homeless guy in New York, you know, and he was ridden with food and so forth. And he's an extraordinary man, you know, yeah. so... Yeah, that's amazing. Giving these people uh, a chance or another chance and teaching them these life skills and culinary skills. Um, yeah, cheers to you all. That's that's amazing. Is there something you're most proud of uh, thus far about the Jacques Pepin Foundation? Well, I'm proud, very proud of my daughter and my son-in-law for having done that. I would never have done uh, that type of things myself without uh, without the help. And, and uh, even the video that I'm doing now, for Facebook is Claudine who told me, uh, like we were in, in Florida and we came back the beginning of March. And she said, you know, why don't you do some video I can put on Facebook using stuff you have in your freezer, refrigerator, in the pantry to show people, you know, and it started and I've done 150 of those as, as is now, but it was Claudine who kind of, uh, Ask me to do that. And of course, my friend Tom, that you met before, Wadi, who filmed it, who organized it. I mean, it's very easy. In the kitchen, there is two people. Tom filming it with two cameras, one hold by hand, and, and me, who cook, who do the dishes, who clean it up, and so forth. There is two people. So it's a short crew. So Tom has been very good. I wouldn't be on your show if he didn't set it up for me because I'm not too good with, uh, with that, you know? So, so I have a lot of help. Yeah. I have a Claudine, lot of help. Claudine's keep, keeps you busy, huh? She doesn't yes, she does. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> you mentioned Fair Start, this organization, which sounds incredible. I want to look them up, but I want to also give you a moment to shed some light on another organization, if you wish, or any fund we hear about these days that you'd like to raise some awareness for, or 
Is, is there someone or some organization that's impressed you recently that you want to shed light on? Well, uh, the, the, the uh, Food Across America that you mentioned before, it's a great organization, you know, and uh, they, do, they do a lot of good. And especially it's important to do it with children. And that's what they do there. That's where you change the life of someone, you know, at the beginning like this. And uh, so I'm very proud to be a bit associated with them. I don't do much, but you know, I do whatever I can. With well, you're, you're, a, you're a loud voice for them and I know they appreciate it. And just piggybacking off of what you're saying, I think shedding light on this organization is fantastic. We want to get- Yeah, you know, you know Jim Grosso, right? Yeah. Jim yeah. Grosso is the, the one who runs Spoon Across America. And I know that Daniel's wife, Christine, is very involved in it too, Daniel Bulu's wife and so forth. So a lot of people from the restaurant business that's working that. Yeah, that's amazing. So we'll continue to do that this season to give guests a chance to shed light on on different organizations. And also, if if anyone listening wants to give back, you you don't have to have all the money in the world. You can lend your voice, your time, um, even if it's a dollar, ten dollars. All, all, all this goes a long way for all these organizations. So thank you for for shouting out Spoons Across America. Let's do another quick speed round, and then we'll close it out with a couple questions. Sound good? Okay. All righty. What did you have for dinner last night? Wow. Last night I had pasta vazul. <laughs> I think my wife had that for dinner. That, that I, did. I, I cook a new recipe to show Claudine how to do it. She had asked me to do it in a very simple way. So, you know, I had some onion, some garlic. I put a can of tomato, a bit of water, and then a handful of raw pasta that I cook in the dough which cook in 15, 20 minutes, then I kind of be, I kind of beans in there. So it was done pretty fast. And uh, so I will do it next time that I do a taping for her. So. <laughs> I was going to say the last thing you cooked, but there we have it. Pasta Fajol. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Oh, the smell in the kitchen. Well, uh, when I fry something, you know, the smell of, uh, of, uh, of uh, chicken frying for me, you know, the smell of the chicken, and even the hearing of the chicken. I remember when I was in apprenticeship, the chicken cook at high temperature, and by then the juice come out of it, and eventually the fat clarified, and it starts frying. And at that time, the chef would tell you that chicken is cooked. Can you hear it frying? You know, so, yeah, and I say you use your smell, but you use your hearing, you touch, and so forth. Yeah, chicken, that's, a, that's a good one. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Uh, the garbage, I guess. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> what pisses you off in the kitchen? Well, when things don't work out the way I want, I get pissed off, yes. And sometimes you try to open an oyster, which I have opened two dozen, uh, like in no time at all, uh, one which is very recalcitrant, you know, and impossible to open. And that sometimes I get mad, you know, so I mean mad. Anyway, so. What makes you happy in the kitchen? Well, the smell, the touch, uh, yeah, the taste, uh, everything, the look, you know, all that, that because you bring all of your sense together in the kitchen. I mean, I'm sitting down at the table, my dining room is close to the kitchen. I can see it. The fireplace, I can see it too. So, you know, all of those things together, uh, create a, and, you know, after 54 years of marriage, uh, we still sit down and uh, share a bottle of wine sometime too at night and have dinner and, and talk about the day. So that's, that's the conclusion of the day, the pinnacle of the day, you know, the culmination of the day for us. Yeah. Fantastic. What actor would you want to play Chef Jacques Papin in a movie about your life? Oh, me? Oh, boy, I, I, that's a good one. So I, I would have 
I would have no idea. Uh, yeah, I have to think about that one. I mean, uh, Tom Cruise is one of the guys that I thought is the greatest actor ever, you know, with so many facets and variations too. I mean, you know, when I saw, when I, there was a movie of Julia Child uh, uh, by, uh, 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 um, uh, who did the, who was Julia Child? Uh, uh, I, I, okay, because come back in, in one minute. She lived in Connecticut too, and, I, and I, I've met her too. And when, when I heard that, I knew Julia for so many years. And uh, I say, uh, if you do Julia, you have to do her voice and so far. Do and that's going to become a cliche, to, a cliche too. And I look at the movie and within five minutes, I thought that, yeah, I thought that she was Julia Child, yeah, you know. Meryl Streep. Uh, Meryl Streep. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. thought Meryl Streep was, you know, after five minutes, you know, she, she, she's so good, which I didn't think it could be done, you know, so I don't know. All right, anyway. Tom, Tom Cruise, you're on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, closing out here. If all students, former students, that have been impacted by the Jacques Pepin Foundation were sitting in a room, what advice on life would you give to them? I would have, I would give life again that if you cook, if you make a living out of what you do cooking, then you have a successful life. But if you, you know, now, especially with television in the last few years, you know, people start cooking because they want to become famous too. This is not because you still have very hard time working in the kitchen. It's a very hard work. You work Saturday, Sunday, you work holiday. Uh, you know, you don't make that much money really too. So uh, don't go there for any of this. But if you go for the right reason, is that, that you love food, you love to cook for people, you find it rewarding to give, to go, then do it. You'll make a living out of it and you'll have a happy life. You know? So, yeah. Chef, you've received 16 James Beard Awards. You have five honorary doctoral degrees and the Legion of Honor, the highest French decoration and one of the most famous in the world. Wow. All that aside, <laughs> all those little things aside, what do you hope is your legacy? My legacy? I, I think that when people think of me or do something, if I bring a, a smile on their face, then they'll be very happy, you know, because you bring happiness to people. That's what you want to do especially in our time of polarization and discussion and so forth. You know, if we can, because there is no political application in what we do. As I said, you know, uh, there is no color of skin in the eye of the stove. You know, the stove, you are there and, uh, 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 you know, there is no political implication in what we do, racial implication, religious implication too. No, you, you are 11 o'clock in the kitchen, the morning at 12 o'clock, a hundred people are, are sitting down to eat. You have to move and move regardless of who you are. So, you know, there is that kind of uh, equalization behind the stove. A little bit like behind the table, you know, when you go sit down with five friends around the table, you know, sometime uh, you are next to the governor or whoever, he doesn't know maybe the dishwasher next to him. You're around the table, you're into a conversation that maybe in other time they would never speak to you or whatever. The same thing around the, the kitchen, around the stove or around the table, you know, yeah. and that's a good thing. That's fantastic. Chef, um, it was a true honor to have this conversation with you. Thank you. And I, I have burned into my brain from growing up as a little kid from my mother that she always said, if you do what you love to do in life, 
you never have to work. And I know that's a yeah, big exactly. saying from yeah, you. Yeah, so I know yeah. she'll appreciate that and be smiling ear to ear. So thank you again. I appreciate it. Keep up all thank the incredible you. work you and your team are doing. And have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. And happy cooking to thank you. Thank you. To you too. Thanks again to Chef Jacques Pepin. Find more on him at jacquespepin.org. To learn more about the Jacques Pepin Foundation, go to jp.foundation. And if you'd like to learn more about Spoons Across America, you can go to spoonsacrossamerica.org. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at OnCappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the social media channels now at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joe Yetton, and Sean Petrosian. Big thank you to Sarah McClellan for her digital media savviness. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Join us this Friday for our first episode of Beyond the Drink, made possible with the help of our friends at Deep Eddie Vodka. We'll be talking with one of the pioneering and leading bar professionals in the world. He's Tony Abuganim, and he'll take us behind the bar and share what inspires him. Plus, everything you need to know about one of the most popular cocktails, which also happens to be a favorite of my wife and I. So much so, we served it at our wedding. I also wanted to mention we have some awesome merch for you all to check out, uh, which you can find a link in your podcast player or at beyondtheplatemerch.com. We have those super soft tees that we all love, and we also have hoodies along with some different styles of hats and beanies, so make sure to check that out. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.